0: welcome welcome everyone this is a reason for hope and we are with you live for the next hour to receive and with the help of god's word answer your questions on the bible that's right this hour is dedicated and guided by your questions as you send them into us as we are live here so we welcome you to the broadcast and are very glad for your participation Indeed, that's right so if you have any question on the bible maybe a verse or passage of scripture that you'd like to delve into further or something that's confused you maybe even Christian living, or world events from a biblical perspective, anything along that line, as long as it's an honest question, and as long as you know, we're going to delve into the Bible to find those answers. That's what we're all about here at Reason for Hope. My name is Dave Robson. I will be hosting today and fielding those questions as they come on in, and with us also, our first guest, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today? Good. A real fascinating discovery I made recently. Oh yeah? What is that?
1: I found out how to transform a mammal into an insect. How do you do that? Well, like, for example, you take a bear and you remove their ears, they become a bee.
0: (sighs) (laughs) I never knew that. Well, I mean... All kinds of information you can learn on the show. Yeah. But yeah, yes. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a spelling joke. Wow, we're well, moving swiftly on. Also with us, <laughs> Scott Richards, who's a senior pastor. got follow something. up on that? you got to go. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Richards, who's a senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. How are you doing today?
2: I'm doing fantastic. It's always exciting to be able to be here. Yesterday's program, uh, just even uh, tuning in and Uh, putting up our uh, posts on our Twitter feed at scottr 4 h at twitter.com. The the stuff you guys were able to get on through was just uh, really fantastic, and I'm praying that the Lord will move in a similar way in this broadcast. Yeah,
0: absolutely. We never know where it's going to go. Like I say, it's guided by your questions. Lots of questions yesterday on, on hell and what hell will be like and, what will be in hell and will animals be in hell and that kind of thing. And so something I hope we never find out in person, but it was certainly a great, uh, there's discussion. some
2: yappy dogs that have come after me <laughs> while I'm running
0: that I, I yes, would not mind they will definitely suffering be such a fate, but, yeah, uh, you guys covered that. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed so so once again we welcome your questions we never know where the show is going to go it's guided by your questions and there's uh, several ways you can join us and send those questions in we have an email address questions for hope at gmail.com that's questions for hope spelled out at gmail.com if you're listening to us on the radio you'll want to use that method as you are listening to our last show pre-recorded so welcome if you're on the radio um, send us your questions through our email address there and we'll get to them on our next broadcast but we are live on the other platforms calvarychristianfellowship.com follow the watch live tab you'll find us there also we have an app and a channel on roku and apple tv so look for calvary christian fellowship of tucson and you'll find our app to download there and you can use the chat function there as well on facebook as well calvary christian fellowship of tucson you can watch and comment there as well on youtube the channel is called a reason for hope so on youtube a reason for hope and as pastor scott mentioned you can follow him on twitter at Scott R for H, that's Scott letter R, number four letter H, and he posts highlights from the show and kind of updates on world events and comical things and serious things and all kinds of things.
2: Interesting interactions on uh, matters spiritual yeah. uh, and biblical. I think you'll find it
0: interesting. Yeah, yeah, you'll be able to follow along every day there as well. So, with all that being said, I think I covered everything. Sean, would you like to pray for us today? happy to that'd be great dad thank you that we have the chance
1: to be thankful While this is a week where for some reason we take the time aside we want to make it a habit not only are we grateful for the opportunity to share your word but also receive your spirit and make this time worthwhile we ask that you'd be glorified as a result of this and to thank you in advance for all the questions that we'll be receiving and the glory that's brought to your name we pray this in jesus name Mm. amen
0: amen amen Amen. well scott do you have a Update for us. You often share a prophecy update. Yeah. What's going on? Uh,
2: yeah. As, as we mentioned, one of the things that we try to do on the program is update you on events, uh, particularly surrounding Israel. Uh, as our good friend Don Stewart uh, once so eloquently put it, when it comes to God's uh, prophetic program, the return of Jesus. Israel is God's hour hand, Jerusalem is the minute hand, and the Temple Mount is the second hand. So we watch with quite a bit of interest uh, the things going on in Israel, uh, particularly as uh, they relate to uh, a couple of different scriptures, Matthew 24, which speaks of wars, and rumors of wars, not just generally and globally, but especially as they they pertain to Israel. These are one of the things that Jesus said that we were to be aware of. Uh, the other is uh, the pattern of nations that we see described in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, which will one day form a coalition uh, against Israel and will invade uh, with massive overwhelming numbers, seemingly on the edge of victory. God is going to intervene, destroy this invading army, and at that point Israel is going to know that the Lord is God. There's an awful lot more we go into it in Ezekiel thirty-eight and thirty-nine. If you got questions about that, we can certainly explore it. But but that's the overview. And so we try to pay attention not just to Israel, but especially to the coalition of nations that are specifically mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, based upon their tribal groups, uh, for the most part. But one nation in particular that is named, whose uh, name has uh, persisted all the way down from the writing of Ezekiel, oh, about uh, roughly six hundred years before Jesus and uh, is the same to this day and that is persia or modern iran well there's a couple of things that're going on in israel we wanted to make you aware of for the purpose of prayer and uh, so that uh, you can pray for the peace of jerusalem as we are enjoined to do in the bible but also i believe Have a prophetic connection, especially in the wars and rumors of wars, and even reaching over into Ezekiel 38. Let me share with you what I mean. Uh, On uh, All Israel News, Joel Rosenberg's excellent uh, news site. If you're not following allisrael.com, you need to. It is really a wonderful place to go for uh, events Surrounding Israel from a decidedly biblical and Christian point of view, also the Jerusalem Post we find is a good place to go uh, for headlines and uh, commentary, kind of from the other side in a sense, but uh, you get a good balance by taking a look at both of them. Uh, The headline on allisrael.com today is a troubling one. It says, one teen killed at least 22 wounded in two bombings at Jerusalem bus stops. Uh, The article says in the type of terror attack reminiscent of the Second Intifada, that means the Palestinian uprising, a 16-year-old boy was killed and several injured this morning in a bombing at a Jerusalem bus stop at the entrance to the city. According to the reports, an explosive device inside a backpack was set off in two separate locations, killing one and injuring those standing nearby. Uh, a yeshiva student uh, from Jerusalem who also has Canadian uh, citizenship was declared dead at a nearby hospital after the attack. They've got a picture of this young man, and it just breaks your heart uh, to know that this uh, young man's life was taken in this senseless act of violence. Uh, well, maybe not so senseless. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, a, uh, the Israeli radio reported that someone on an electric bike rode by and dropped off a backpack with an explosive device and left the scene. Later, a second bomb went off in Ramot, which is a Jerusalem suburb. Police are treating the two bombings as a coordinated attack. Now, Itamar Ben-Giver, who we've mentioned on the broadcast, who has uh, put himself into a place of pretty significant power uh, because he heads up a uh, right-leaning uh, religious uh, coalition uh, that makes up a key part of Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, incoming government. Uh, ben Giver has been mentioned as an individual who's going to be given the portfolio of public security minister in the next government. If you know anything about Israel, that is a very important position to have in any Israeli government. Uh, he called for Israel to restart targeted assassinations. Shortly after, he arrived on the scene of one of the bombings. He said this, We're experiencing a chain of events that did not start this morning. We need to break this chain. We need them to pay a price for terrorism. That means returning to the targeted threats. It means stopping the abuses in the prisons. To extract a price for terrorism means that everything has to be closed in the mornings at the security prisons. In other words, no visitors and uh, no privileges and so on. Uh, again, Ben Giver and other politicians in the anticipated coalition called on Prime Minister-designate Benjamin Netanyahu to form a government as soon as possible to be able to respond to this attack. Now, no group has claimed credit for the attack, which is significant. Mm. Uh, usually, if it is a Palestinian group or a, a splitter group, uh, something like Hamas, uh, or uh, any of the others, Islamic Jihad, and so on, they are the first to want to get maximum publicity out of uh, such an act of terror. But they're uh, interestingly silent about all of this, and and I think that there is a reason for it. Uh, Israeli officials believe that a terror cell, uh, comprised of several members familiar with the area, had been planning the attack for some time, the bombs were remotely detonated. They were very sophisticated, and the other thing is this: uh, the Mossad, the Israeli secret service, has a very good feel uh, for localized terror activity. Uh, they pretty much know what's going on in the Palestinian territories, as opposed to what was going on uh, back during the days of what was called the Intifada. The uh, the, uh, the Palestinian uh, Liberation Organization led uh, uprising against Israel. Uh, the the techniques that were used in the Intifada aren't really effective anymore because Israel has built a uh, terror fence, if you will, between their territory and the territories controlled by the Palestinians. And so, to to make it simple, a Palestinian. Can't wake up in the morning and just decide, I'm going to go kill some Jews, walk from the Palestinian territories into Jewish territory. They've got to go through checkpoints. There is an incredibly efficient security system involved there. So in order to carry off an attack like this, you've got to have very sophisticated planning. You have to have, uh, in this case, uh, these are not just, say, Uh, you know, uh, homemade bombs that are going off here. These are sophisticated devices that were able to be detonated from a distance. They were designed to do maximum impact, loaded with uh, nails and marbles and so forth to uh, ensure the the most uh, damage possible there. But uh, these two bombings and a series of bombings that have taken place in Israel. uh, People say, well, you know, is is it the Palestinians acting up? I think if it was the Palestinians, they'd be taking credit for it. But I think there's another uh, event in the news uh, that ran on the Jerusalem Post website that might give us a connection to what's going on here. And a bit of a picture of a bigger picture beginning to emerge here. Uh, The headline reads, according to Iran, Israel killed the top Iranian Republican Guard Corps missile expert in Syria, and have vowed revenge. This happened over the weekend. Uh, Colonel Davoud Jafari, who is affiliated with the Iranian Aerospace Force, was said to have been killed in a roadside bombing near Damascus. Uh, the Iranians claimed that Israel was behind the explosion, saying it will respond to the attack. The statement said that criminal and fake Zionist regime would suffer response for the atrocity, uh, he has this uh, individual was uh, highly placed, a, a very uh, well-trained uh, scientific and engineering mind in terms of the Iranian missile program uh, that they are involved with, and so losing him would be a major blow. He was blown up uh, by a roadside bomb. Interestingly enough, he was also among the officials responsible for the seizure of two U.S. Navy command boats that were carrying 10 personnel in the Persian Gulf back in 2016. You might recall that was a huge propaganda coup for the Iranians because they got pictures of um, our naval uh, soldiers uh, kneeling and having Iranians pointing guns at their head. And they held them for a time. Then after the usual uh, political hoo-ha went on, uh, they released the prisoners back to the United States. After the incident, Jafari, who was killed, And other officials met with Iran Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei to receive a medal for the seizure. So this is a guy who was definitely up and coming in Iranian military circles. He had the engineering background, the missile development expertise, and was there in Syria. And Syria, for those of you who follow the program, you probably know we've mentioned this, has become, in a sense, a uh, de facto uh, middle ground for a Cold war going on between Israel and Iran. Now, uh, there are those who believe that uh, Israel could not have pulled off this uh, particular uh, targeted uh, attack without help from the United States. And so Iran has it in for both the United States and Israel about all of this. This major individual, this up-and-coming military uh, heavy hitter has taken out Iran vows revenge and justice. And lo and behold, an attack takes place in Jerusalem that was so sophisticated that the very sophisticated uh, efforts of the Mossad and the Israeli police were not able to prevent it taking place uh, while it was going on. The, the, the fact that uh, these uh, bombs were triggered remotely and uh, designed uh, very sophisticatedly, according to reports, tells me that this was something that went on with probably a state sponsor of terrorism behind it. Uh, this uh, I have no proof for this. Take this for what it's worth. But I do believe that Iran was making good on their vow of revenge for losing such a highly placed military individual by hitting Israel where it hurts the most, uh, hitting its citizenry, uh, hitting uh, Jerusalem, and, uh, and committing this kind of, of terrorist attack. So uh, really interesting things going on there and I think what we're going to see is that this Cold War between Iran and Israel is going to continue to heat up. Iran knows that uh, once Benjamin Netanyahu finishes the uh, crossing the T's and dotting the I's of his new coalition, uh, Netanyahu was not some, someone who was reticent about uh, ratcheting up responses To Iranian attacks. So they may be trying to get in as many licks and blows as they can before the next government is put into place. It may very well be that events in the Middle East, including the uh, aftermath of what's going on with Russia in the Ukraine, Iran's uh, uh, supplying Russia with drone technology and so forth uh, in this particular effort, and all these things are coming together. But Syria appears to be the place where all of these uh, different competing powers are butting heads. And I think we're going to see an awful lot more of that going on. Uh, you know, there, uh, earlier in the week, we talked a little bit about how an Iranian drone attacked an Israeli-owned uh, oil tanker in the mm-hmm. Mediterranean. Uh, and I think we're going to see these kind of attacks going on. Now, will these attacks reach the level where uh, a Netanyahu government, for instance, is going to say, we are going to ratchet it up a bit, maybe even take the war directly to Iran. I think there's some sophisticated politics that has to be overcome before something like that could happen, including getting the United States and the current administration, who has uh, this uh, almost irrational thought that the Iranians can be negotiated with, that it's not too late, Uh, to complete what's called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that would limit Iran's nuclear program. Well, as we've mentioned, that uh, cow's already left the barn. Uh, Mm -hmm. Iran has already announced that they're able to enrich uranium to 90%, which is weapons-grade, nuclear weapons-grade uranium. Mm -hmm. Uh, We believe there's probably, according to reports, uh, about a two-year lag time uh, between obtaining that kind of material and, and the technology to create a bomb and deliver it with a ballistic missile. At least that's what Israel seems to be banking on. Mm. But uh, things are heating up in a big-time hurry. We've talked about birth pains that Jesus warned about. I think we have been kind of going along, and now we're seeing, not just in these terrorist acts, but in these terrorist acts in response to an Israeli-targeted attack on a key Iranian personnel. Um, The Cold War is heating up. How hot it's going to get, we don't know. Maybe it's going to build to a crescendo and then calm down again. But pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, It's a very difficult and trying time uh, for God's
0: people there in the region. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that update and indeed pray. That's what we can do, right? We can pray and pray for the peace. Absolutely. Uh, We have a couple of questions coming in. Um, A question from uh, Jamal here. I think that's how you say your name. Um, And it's, a question p- can probably lead on to a bigger question. He asked, where in Jeremiah is it talking about uh, the Christmas tree? I'm not familiar with that, but, but <laughs> yeah. maybe a... Um, yeah. yeah, we are. <laughs> a bigger <laughs> a bigger question might be this time of year, you know, especially Thanksgiving, people are going to put up their Christmas decorations. Is that a, a kind of a pagan thing? Is that something we should avoid as Christians, putting up a Christmas tree and decorations? We haven't even hit Thanksgiving yet. We're getting the uh, <laughs> well, we're close. Christmas trees. Close uh, some people are buying
2: their Christmas trees, I guess, yeah.
1: already. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. um, Okay, where to begin? The problem with this popular claim that Christmas trees are pagan, that Easter celebrations are pagan, that everything in its mom is pagan, is always (laughs) going to come from... Don't talk
2: about my mom. (laughs) Yeah, It's always going to come
1: from an assumption that the audience that they're speaking to is going to take their word for it and not look these things up. As you know, on the program, we encourage welcome and revel in full transparency especially in opportunities to be corrected if it is so warranted when ministries as well intended as they may be the problem is they continue to espouse this nonsense despite being corrected on it multiple times I have to conclude after a certain point they're not just they're they're just not concerned with truth. And that is a problem, especially among Christian circles who should have a love for the truth. The claim that the Bible condemns Christmas trees or that it identifies them as pagan is eisegeted, not exegeted, not taken from the Scripture, but shoehorned into the Scripture in the book of Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. Now, Shall, let me, shall I read it? Yeah, or we'll, do you go ahead. It. It. Uh, uh, I have it, but yeah. Okay.
2: Uh, the Jeremiah chapter 10 says, Hear the word of the Lord which speaks to you, house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the ways of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are futile. One cuts a tree from the forest, the work of hands of a workman with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them. They cannot do evil nor can they do any good. Clearly, Jeremiah here is saying that Christmas trees are pagan, right? Well, if you (laughs) haven't been attending
1: our rhetoric lessons, you would know there's something fishy going on with an assumption made in reading that passage. First of all, Jeremiah, and this is setting up what we call an iron manning of their position, setting up a condemnation of idolatry in the form of or in association with wood. Because something came from a tree and then is used for anything other than to sit in the soil outside, therefore it is pagan. Is that what's being condemned here? Well, we first of all encourage in any sound reading of Scripture not to stop six verses into a chapter that goes on for another 24. When we're talking about this, it goes on to note by contrast that God is greater than these nations, but invert or the customs of these nations but in verse 8 it says but they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish a wooden idol is a worthless doctrine not billy idol but a wooden idol, and yeah. we talked about this last <laughs> week. Thank you for reference. clarifying that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we we talked about this a bit last week when uh, the concept of Henotheism and modern Hebrew scholars espousing that doctrine, even though they won't be held accountable for it. What is an idol for the sake of those listening?
2: Well, literally in Hebrew, it's a nothing. Okay, it's it's a uh, worthless piece of bronze, as uh, one of the Josiah said about uh, a uh, the uh, bronze serpent that uh, was made in the wilderness. People were worshiping it. He broke it in pieces and called it Nehushtan, which meant a worthless piece
1: of bronze. And now that's curious to me because who first crafted, or rather who commissioned the crafting of that bronze idol to begin with? It was God. God told Moses to do something with this brass to make a serpent on a pole, and interestingly enough, was directly referenced by Jesus in a passage you're all familiar with, John chapter 3 and verse 14, where he made it an illustration of himself. But here's the interesting part in all of this. What turned it from an, from a legitimate piece of Jewish history, something that God used to foreshadow Jesus, the Messiah, as they would have referred to him, into an idol? It wasn't the brass, it was the doctrine right the worthless doctrine right. the beliefs about those things now if you're going to a tree a palm tree is referenced in this passage but a pine tree or an evergreen tree would be more appropriately compared to the christmas trees we generally associate with the holiday season is what a tree It's a stick with more than the usual girth that we're accustomed to lifting. And of course, as the source of wood, it is decorated with various I guess, themes, depending on the house, that they're go-to. You remember the Charlie Bound Christmas? They got the popcorn streamers. Usually we have lights, but here's the whole point. In my case, it's not wood. It's yeah. plastic. Yeah, we got those uh, <laughs> yeah. those little pipe cleaners, yeah. as they yeah. said in a yeah. Christmas story. But the point being made is what made the difference? It wasn't the material that made it idolatrous. It was the doctrine associated with it. So in Jeremiah, when he identifies wood, Ministries that are not concerned with the truth would focus on the material, say, see, tree, wood, evil. Whereas Jeremiah, in the same chapter, goes on to clarify what? The doctrine of this idol is right. worthless. Now, what doctrine was that? If you want a little history lesson, it's a bit of an aside. What's being talked about here are what are called Asherah poles. If there are kids listening, remember the Bible's a book written for adults too. The Asherah poles were literally not just trees that you would set up and bow down and worship before. They were totem poles, not unlike the things that we see in the uh, Polynesian regions and uh, parts of Hawaii the city as well. The Northwest, yeah. Yeah. Uh, these carvings into the idols would be specifically of a... Uh, immature sort, be a modern-day equivalent to the abuse of the internet, and it would be used as a marker for people to engage in similar activities around it. That's what's the idolatrous aspect of it. Now, if you're using your Christmas tree as a marker for uh, those kinds of gatherings, then I'd say the tree isn't the problem. You are. (laughs) But if, on the other hand, we take another step back and ask, but You can clearly acknowledge and see here that what's being condemned is the taking of a tree, the setting of it up, the association with gold and silver in it, like the little orbs that we hang off of it in tinsel. Don't you see and can't you plainly admit that what's happening here is that God is condemning the setting up of trees as a custom of the nations, that the nations are practicing this custom. Well, I would acknowledge that if the rest of the Bible and chapter didn't exist. For example, in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 14, there's an interesting observation made, and this is just noting the passage. He cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar in the rain and nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and makes bread also. He makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and fall down before it. Now notice, he had to take the tree and make it into an idol. The tree wasn't the idol. Other examples making the same point in scripture are condemning the idolatry, not the material of the idol. Now if your if your arguments are then so shallow, and I wish I was making this up, but are so deft of evidence that you have to say, and this is quoting them, well, understand that whenever you go to these Christmas trees and reach down for a present underneath them, you are kneeling before that tree. Kneeling is worship. You are worshiping the tree. The practice is what's being condemned. The doctor, why are you laughing? It's almost as if this is ridiculous. The problem is, again, does that mean that when you have the stomach flu, you're worshiping your toilet because you can't stand on your feet? It has been referred to as worshiping at the porcelain altar. Mm -hmm. But more out of jest than of a pagan practice. Yeah. We can note, oh, well, if I have to reach down and pick up something that I left under my car, am I worshipping my car, if I kneel, you get the point. It's all based on either a dependence on the ignorance of their audience, which is manipulative, a dependence on us not checking up on their facts, which is deceptive, or just a complete misrepresentation of the text, which is blasphemous, Either way, you're not put in a positive place, even if I assume the best out of you. You don't know what this patch is talking about. You're given this information from people on the internet, which means that you're ignorant. So which position do you want to take? Ignorance, manipulation, deception, or blasphemy? none of those are an option i'd want to pick i'd rather distance myself from the whole arrangement the reality is and again brief history we can go more on to it jermail if you have further questions on this but the first mention of a christmas tree in all of recorded history isn't in the theogony the source for greek paganism isn't in the prose edis the source for norse paganism isn't even in the egyptian book of the dead it was referenced in a law in medieval europe as far as, and this was in the region we know today as Germany, how high your Christmas tree could be in order to not interfere with local governance ordinances. Now, this was a time where they didn't have theaters and the Internet, and you you had your multimedia encyclopedia at all times uh, to entertain you. They would go to plays, and one of the more popular ones was plays concerning the Bible already steeped in paganism, aren't we? And what was interesting about these plays is that a very prominent one that was put on at this time of year was regarding the incident of Adam and Eve. And in Germany, they got a lot of trees, evergreen trees in particular. They would associate symbols with this. I won't read that into it because I can't back it up with citation. But in the Adam and Eve plays, they would decorate the trees in order to make things festive at a very brittle time of year, especially in Germany, and, of course, they would eat the apples and the popcorn and the other things that were strewn about on these trees in order to not waste food. Now, during these plays and, of course, in these celebrations, it was common for people to likewise celebrate Christ's Mass, which was a tradition that went back to the 2nd century, and again, not in the Bible but a very, very early church tradition where they celebrated it because of a cultural assumption. We got time. I'll mention this as well. Um, The idea that Jesus was born on December 25th, not taken from the Bible, but was made from a cultural assumption about the perfect life, that people, significant people in history would die on the same day that they were conceived. Now, obviously, we know a little bit, about the uh, death of jesus that his uh, physical death historically was around late april early uh, uh mid april early march and what was uh, interesting about this is that in that time frame they would say okay so nine months for conception we've got the end of march well that puts us to the end of december when jesus must have been conceived yeah, yeah so, so it wasn't just about uh, christianizing saturnalia like no they, evidence for that yeah. whatsoever we know next to nothing about saturnalia and the only people again espousing it are either deceptive christians or deceptive non-christians not informed in either department the point being made is just that though um, the cultural assumptions made around these things and feel free to ask for a citation we'll give it but the point being made is just that going back to the christmas traditions the accusation that they're pagan depends on you being ignorant it doesn't take much effort to verify facts today. Right. But the problem is we get into this culture of assuming trust in our sources for information because, quite frankly, it can be exhausting to take in so much information and always have to be testing it. The fact of the matter is, and this is an exhortation to all of you, start with us. If you are curious about any questions that you are going to ask, make sure that you've taken the time to verify from people you trust and have verified them as well before you hear from us so that you can ask further or informed questions. Maybe hearing it audibly as well as reading it visually will help solidify the information in your mind and confirm and solidify it in your mind for use in evangelism. But the point being made is this. People who are saying that Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 2 through 4 are speaking of Christmas trees, are ignorant, are lying, Manipulating you or simply don't know what they're talking about, but I repeat myself on the point of ignorance. And we don't want to be in any of those categories. The reality is that when it comes to the traditions that have been circulated, are there people who abuse it and use it for other than Christ like purposes? Yeah, but don't let that be you. If you have the opportunity to remember Jesus even once a year, take advantage of it because it's far more profitable than the other 364 spent not thinking about him, even if it's an association with his creation, which, by the way, he uh, also made the trees. Yeah, that's right. Very good. So uh, clip and save that a dissertation there
2: for for further reference. This question yeah. comes up all the yeah, time course.
0: and uh, will increase in frequency and intensity as Christmas draws near. <laughs> yes, it will. <laughs> yeah, so Jamal, thank you for that question. You know, like you say, I'm sure a lot of people had that same question. So hopefully that helps you this uh, this holiday season to make those decisions. We had a really nice email that I'll read from Adrian, not our Adrian here, but another Adrian. He said, Dear Pastors, I am so grateful for all that you do. Thank you for your faithfulness in teaching the Word of God. I have learned so much from you, and you all have been a great encouragement to me. Happy Thanksgiving, Adrian. So thank well, you, Adrian.
2: Happy Thanksgiving to all of our listeners. And we want to tell you how thankful we are for each and every one of you that make a reason for hope a part of your uh, day, man. That's right. Uh, uh, you know, It's our honor to be able to share God's Word with you. That's right. Uh,
0: yep, yeah. and guided by your questions. So we're, we're very grateful that you provide that, those questions for the content. A uh, question from Ben here. Uh, He says, beaten with many, beaten with few stripes. If someone does something more than once, um, sins more than once, will they be beaten with many? For example, a serial killer versus a one-time murderer. So basically, I think the question is, are there sins of greater severity and require harsher judgment? Yeah, this gets into the idea of are there degrees of punishment in hell is
2: what people are asking. Are some people going to get off lighter? Is there a nice part of hell to be in uh, versus the rough neighborhoods of hell to be in? Uh, you know, the, the, the statement uh, that's brought up, uh, and it's an interesting one, is in the context of uh, Jesus speaking about his return and the importance of being ready for his return in very practical ways. So the
1: context. Yeah. Uh,
2: again, verse 41 of Luke chapter 12, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? Lord said who then is the faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes truly i say to you he will make him ruler over all that he has but if that servant says in his heart my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, at an hour he is not aware, and will cut him in two and appoint him with his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be Mm. beaten with few. For every one of whom much is given from him, much will be required. And to whom much has been
1: committed of him, they will ask the more. So no. Is the operative term in that passage uh, not quantity of sin, but the knowledge of what you were doing as sinful?
2: Yeah, and and again, people will be judged based upon the amount of spiritual information, the amount of light that they have, and and I think the the easy application to all of this, but it eludes some people, uh, kind of hits home when people will bring up the time honored question: uh, Well, what about that uh, noble savage? you name your favorite noble savage site in the Mm -hmm. world, who never had a chance to hear about Jesus. How will God deal with them? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, first of all, we see in passages like Acts chapter 10, you want to read that passage on your own time, you certainly can, God will literally move heaven and earth to get his message to anyone who is open to receiving his truth. And there's a fascinating book called Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson, a veteran uh, missionary and anthropologist, that talks about just how God has done uh, that in amazing ways. Missionaries will come and share, and they go, whoa, well, well, we already know all about this. Uh, you know, the the true God revealed himself to us. And they're like, wow, you know, that's really something. So anyone who is open to receiving God's truth will receive it. But the whole many stripes, few stripes, turns around and boomerangs on the person who asked that question because you got to have a pretty well-developed set of, uh, ideas and information regarding the message of Christianity to even ask that question in the first place. And, and so when someone says, what about the noble savage who never heard? Mm-hmm. The easy answer is God does everything right. God's completely just. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? He will judge that person perfectly. No one will second guess or say, gee, you know, God was unfair about that. The words unfair and God will never be uttered in heaven. But what about you? You've heard. You know, you've had this opportunity to be able to understand that Jesus claimed to be the only way to God, that he died on a cruel Roman cross for your sins, that he rose from the dead in a moment of history. You've heard all of that. What are you going to do with all of that? And the idea of being beaten with stripes and so on, you know, the the, the painfulness that is involved there, I think indicates that there's going to be people that are going to be separated from God forever who are going to be shocked. By that happening mm. um jesus uh, famous statement at the end of the sermon on the mount in matthew chapter 7 that there's going to be plenty of people are going to say to jesus lord lord and we do all kinds of wonderful things. we taught you in our streets we cast out demon your name did your sign your name did signs and wonders say i never knew you mm. be gone for me you will practice lawlessness mm. so you can know a lot about jesus but until you know jesus until you personally invite him into your heart mm. All that knowledge isn't going to do you a bit of good. You can have an impressive spiritual resume of things you've done for Jesus. But if you've never come to him and said, wow, you know, I really have a sin problem. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Lord, I need you in my life. I need your forgiveness. I want to receive that gift that you offer to me. All the religious hoo-ha that you do, not only is it not going to do you a bit of good, but a lot of the religious hoo-ha Uh, Keeps people from seriously examining their own hearts. Well, surely I'm right with God because look at all the committees I'm involved with with the church. Surely I'm right with God because, you know, I gave uh, last year to some Christian cause. You know, these things are fine in and of themselves, but they aren't saving issues. And uh, what Jesus is talking about here is being a faithful and wise steward, being a person that knows Jesus is coming again knows that one way or the other, either we're going to him through the valley of the shadow of death, or he's coming for us at the rapture, but either way, we're going to be in his presence. Mm -hmm. That person's going to live accordingly.
1: That's the wise and
2: faithful steward,
1: and that's the main point of that parable. Yeah, so just note, it begins in verse 42, concludes in verse 48, and the term, the one who knew, not the one who did more of the doubting of his Lord's return. It's the one who mm. knew the right thing to do and didn't do it. And it was an answer to a question. Jesus was asked by his disciples, is this to us or to all people? And he continues talking as if that was answering the question, mm. he's addressing them, not speaking to a broader audience
0: mm. and saying, you know, and you'll be held accountable for it. Very good. Yeah, There you go. Yeah, Ben, hope that helps you out. Thank you for thank you for that question. A uh, question from uh, uh, Donna, I think it is. Why did God choose the Israelites to be the chosen people? Oh, that's a fun one. Uh, Deuteronomy <laughs> chapter 7 why gives not, us we, the direct answer.
2: We ha- No, we have a direct <laughs> answer from Scripture. Right. We don't have to speculate. We don't have to cite... <laughs> Theologians or uh, medieval clerics or... or uh, <laughs> Well, that's good. Those well, are the best let's, ones. Let's just go to the Word. Yeah,
1: yeah Let's is, go to the Bible. <laughs> this is Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. For you, this is speaking to the group of people who were taken out of the land of Egypt in captivity, that would be the Jewish people, are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. That's where we get this term from, by the way to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now, this is where people say, oh, because of their genetics, oh, because of their size, oh, because of their wealth, the anti-Semitic or they're jargon. they're really smart. Yeah. No. It says in verse 7, <laughs> the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for, instead, you were the least of all peoples. Verse 8, but because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, God has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeem you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. And then goes on to note that he is a faithful God. So here's the point that's being made. Why does God choose the Jewish people? The same reason that he chose to save you and me. Because he made a promise he intends to keep, and because he keeps his promises with the motivation of what? not spite, not vindication or retribution, love. He seeks our well-being even at his own expense, never more demonstrated than on the cross. We see that defined for us in the book of Romans chapter 5 as well as in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and others. But the point being made is just that when we're talking about the chosen people, Israel, we're not saying that they have a special pass from the things that they are doing in rebellion against God. They are more accountable, see the previous point. Yeah, the same, not like, like in uh, Fiddler on the Roof where Tevye
2: said, I know you're your chosen people, but couldn't you have chosen somebody else? Yeah, because it puts <laughs> yeah. you uh,
1: kind of in a position with a target on your back, and mm-hmm. we see history testifying to that fact. But the point is, again, literally copied and pasted out of Scripture. God is a loving God and God is a faithful God. God loves the people of Israel, not because of what they do, but because of who he is and because he made a promise that he's going to see through to the end. And there's passages in Jeremiah in particular where it notes that if I'm going to forsake the covenant that I've made with you, and note this is uh, during the Babylonian exile, by the way, he says, then you may as well say the sun's not coming up tomorrow because I'm on the same terms with that thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, this isn't speaking of uh, geocentrism. It's making an illustrative point saying the sun will come up tomorrow. I got called out on this. I'll never forget it. The little orphan Annie said, right? Yes. The sun will come out tomorrow, bet your bottom dollar tomorrow. Why would you make such a risky venture in gambling? Because it's a certain gamble. God is going to make a promise to have the sun come up tomorrow. He also made a promise to keep his promise to Israel, and that was what? Well, among other things, that they wouldn't pass away till all things are fulfilled, that they would be the nation through which the Messiah would come and will return to. I'll let that hang out there for another second. Yeah. And, of course, the one that he will fulfill the promise made to Daniel in chapter 9, verse 24 through. So understand all of that and understand that the concerns about the Jewish people being the chosen people, it's not as propaganda-based as people make it sound. It's literally copied and pasted out of Scripture. Now, people will question the application of it and think that belongs to the church, but that's, uh, I guess, a question for another time, maybe then next time if you guys want to ask but the point being made is just this god specifically singles out the jewish people and says you're my chosen people for what purpose to fulfill the promises i've made in scripture and because i love
0: you not because
1: of anything you do for me the terms of our relationship are the same
0: exactly. very good yeah thank you Donna, i hope that helps you out um that's all speculation though right no no straight from the a- Scripture. A uh, question here Where do I find the scripture about Jesus appearing before 500 people after the resurrection? Thank you and may you be blessed. First let's, Corinthians, let's go straight to the Bible.
1: <laughs> <laughs> 1 Corinthians 15, verses, verses 3 through 7. Yeah.
2: Actually, you can read 1 through 11 and get the whole picture. But, yeah, but you know, that's, 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 that's down the down. ancient hymn that yeah.
1: uh, cites the 500 documented eyewitnesses of Jesus being alive after his public death. Case. Yeah. You say it's an ancient hymn. Why do scholars believe that? Well, first of all, because it's agreed upon by people who wouldn't want to acknowledge those things if they had reason to doubt it. I'm talking people on so far on the left end of the spectrum, atheists, radical atheists at that, but have to be honest historians for reasons they've come up with on their own, have to acknowledge that the information given in this text is something that Paul himself advertises, not as, verse 1, I delivered to you that which I also received. Now, even the most cynical of skeptics would date Paul's letter to the Corinthians, or his second one at least. First Corinthians would be the second time he wrote to you because he references previous writings. Right. He says in First Corinthians that this is something that I delivered to you, which I also, past tense, received. Both are speaking in the past tense. The dating for 1 Corinthians at most is set around the mid-50s AD, so at least put before that. We also need to note that we have many sources of documentation regarding Paul's missionary journeys and when he would have been not just in Asia Minor, that's Turkey today, but specifically where Corinth was found in modern-day Greece. We can put that not just in the 50s when he wrote this letter as a follow-up, but the late 40s, if you're being, again, jaded, cynical liberals. Now, this is where it gets really fun. Paul the Apostle (laughs) not only would have given this information to them in the past tense in the 40s, but we're still pushing the date back. Why? Because given the historical data we have in Acts, in the letters of Paul and Peter, by the way, and the writings of early church fathers who were directly associated with these people— All identified Paul, not only according to his own words in Galatians, as encountering Jesus on the road to Damascus where he had his conversion, but spending three years in Arabia to verify if he had actually seen the risen Lord or if he just had some bad hummus earlier that day and coupled it with heat stroke. So, three years post the persecution of the early church, which was within a year of the resurrection, right? Right. And we'll talk about this more in our study through Acts. So, one year plus, Paul's conversion, three years plus, so four years in noting, he's gathering together all this information, and then what does it say in Galatians? He went to those who were of reputation among the faith to see if he had run or was running in vain. So... And again, this wasn't a light jaunt, like, oh, I've got some uh, airline miles. I'll fly down to from Arabia to Jerusalem and uh, just see if the apostles can clarify some of these things. I'm thinking about Jesus right now to make sure I've got my facts straight. Right. not only shows that Paul's really interested in the truth here, but that he's verifying it with the people who would know, the eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And what does he do? He says, they added nothing to me. So what did they add to him? Pop quiz for two seconds ago. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing nothing to what he had already received. Now, he's delivering this hymn, what was called a doxology, these little short synopses of doctrine. Obviously, they weren't lugging around their Bibles and books or scrolls. They would generally be illiterate in the ancient world, especially given that the uh, majority of the early church was composed of slaves. They didn't have to learn to read to um, do their work. But what's interesting about this was they could, and that didn't mean that they were stupid, just means that they had a limited education, they could memorize, in the same way that we do today, little songs set to tunes. It's not uh, a requirement of literacy to be able to repeat back, amazing grace this week, the sound that saved a wretch like me. Right. So what they would do is they'd give these sources of doctrine, these informations, after long lectures that eventually became our gospels today, Clarifying to them what? That everything that we're reporting about Jesus isn't just us reporting. Paul himself notes in that hymn what? Some of which remain alive today. Others have fallen asleep. But most of these people, at the time I'm giving this to you, they are still alive. You can ask them, which also fixes the date for us. Couldn't have been 100 years after the lifetime. Despite what you might have
2: heard on Fox News, by the way. Yeah, yeah. go figure. So yeah. the
1: point being made is this. We have Paul's timeline of him at most four years out from the resurrection of Jesus, verifying with the apostles what they had been sharing for at least the last three to four years. Also noting, he continues to preach the same message and hand it off to them, which we can verify in writing, with and without scriptural reference all the way to 12 years past that point so his message isn't being adjusted to the sensibilities of the greeks corinth is hearing what jerusalem was hearing what jerusalem was hearing is what paul heard out after he saw jesus alive after the dead but that wasn't enough he wanted to make sure that he had actually seen the risen jesus so he said those are the guys who were following him for three years let me make sure that this isn't a hallucination because a hallucination, and isolation, isn't going to come from a fever-pitched dream of a guy who, literally an hour before, was on his way to imprison and murder more of his followers. The point being made is just that. So regarding the dates, that's the information we have to go to. Within months, months of the events that they're reporting, the resurrection of Jesus, we have it codified, meaning put into book. <laughs> that's literally what codifies, into code. Codex is the ancient term for book, by the way. It's referencing those historical details, and these are things that even atheists will admit to you if they're informed and honest. So essentially, what we're reading in 1 Corinthians 15 dates to how close to the time of the resurrection? Months, and that's according to atheists. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I personally... You, yep. you can ever come up with. And right. by the way, I'll give you names. Gerard Luterman, John Dominic Crossan, James D.Z. Dunn. These are a few who would affirm this as a doctrine within the early church, as early as it could possibly be. James D.Z. Dunn, John Dominic Crossan, and Gerard Luterman. All atheists, all so far on the liberal end of the spectrum. They're about to fall off. Yeah, And they acknowledge this as history because they got to keep their jobs. Mm. Yep. Yeah, great, great. Thank you so
2: much. Great, great answer. Isn't that amazing, though, that when we read a passage like First Corinthians fifteen, in a way, it's almost like going back in a time machine. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're we're standing within a few years yeah of the death of Jesus when we read those words. Right.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, not fables or carefully no. devised or, fables. Or, yeah. yeah. And uh, just as a side note, for those of you who maybe were listening to the last fifteen minutes and said, "Well, if they atheist scholars acknowledge this as the earliest we have of anything in ancient history, why don't they believe it?" Because to acknowledge something was written and taught doesn't mean that they believe what they were telling was true. Yeah. They simply acknowledge that this was something being shared by the early church. This wasn't something they came up with over time.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the other thing is, no matter how much knowledge you might have on a particular subject, uh, you know the old saying is true, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Mm-hmm. If your worldview basically says, no miracles are possible, all we are is an evolutionary fluke, Uh, There is no God. Well, you've got some explaining to do when you come face-to-face with that particular passage. Um, Just because you acknowledge that it is history with a capital H uh, and should challenge you down to the core doesn't mean it's going to overcome all of those issues that you have that are pushing you to such a radical position. And atheism is a radical position. It gets marketed Mm -hmm. these days as being very moderate, and and very intellectual, but it really is not. Um, It is the assertion that nothing created everything, uh, which is an absolute logical fallacy. It's self-refuting that the entire universe is a huge uh, non-caused effect. Well, show me any other example of a non-caused effect, and I'll be happy to consider it. Now, some People will try to say, well, you know, in quantum mechanics, we see that, you know, but even with, with that, you know, right, you've still, in a sense, begged the question, who set these things up? Mm-hmm. Who set up quantum mechanics? You know, was it always there? Well, we know in the laws of physics, the universe isn't eternally preexistent. It's running down. It's running out of energy. It's going to run out. Science has no dispute over that. So it definitely had a beginning. The atheist wants me to believe that a universe that had a beginning was created out of nothing. I saw a guy online say, isn't it wonderful that the the universe created the universe? <laughs> and I'm like, you need to go back to <laughs> a rudimentary logic course mm-hmm. if you're going to put that stuff out and think that it has any kind of heft to it. So, you know, again, when it comes to atheism, and I speak as a person who at one point considered myself to be an atheist, mm. I'll tell you, I have yet to run into an atheist who is an atheist for purely intellectual reasons. Mm. I believe most people are atheists. And like I say, it's a radical position to take mm. for either personal reasons, someone who was a Christian, done them wrong, uh, you know, there was a bad experience they had with the church, and uh, so they want to just turn and run the other way. Or, for moral reasons, there's something going on in their life where they desperately wish there was no
1: God because they don't want to be held accountable to him mm. someday. Or for social reasons, they associate the intellectual or people worth, most worthy of emulation in their lives as their standard and yeah. they're atheists.
2: Which was my main reason for being an atheist. My dad was an atheist. And I thought he was the smartest guy who ever lived. Right. So I, why wouldn't I be like my old man?
1: Right. So intellectual, so, yeah. social, moral, personal. Yeah all can apply an atheism but intellectual because it literally is based on a fallacy. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: but it's a radical position to take. And when someone takes a radical position, it's always good to ask, why do you take such a radical position? How do you know that there's no God?
0: Yep. Yep. Very good. Well, we're almost out of time, just about a minute left. If you're in the Tucson area and looking for somewhere to fellowship, Calvary Christian Fellowship right here near Prince and I-10 tonight, we have a special Thanksgiving um, service yeah. Yeah. If you're going through the holiday blues right now, mm-hmm. Bible apparently has a radical cure for you. So. Very good. Yeah. So you've got about enough time to make it down here, 6.30 PM. We're having some pie right now at the, from six. So if you hightail it down here. Oh my you gosh. Might to... I saw, honest to goodness, they had toffee
2: apple pie out yeah, there. I know. Which I think should be banned by the Geneva Convention. That's just I, I that's think, just too tempting. I think you, I think you could be right. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: And I will mention as well, we we won't be going live for the next couple of days. We'll have uh, Thursday and Friday off for Thanksgiving, um, but we'll be back here on Monday. Same same places, different faces, or maybe the same faces Monday actually. Monday yeah. actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll be the same faces. Yeah. So thank you so much for for being part of our broadcast and a reason for hope. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Join us back on Monday. I think of your questions. Send them in. And uh, we will see you guys there. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Sean. Great show. God bless.
1: You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time.